You're listening to Food for the Future on 980 CFPL, Curious Cast, and where you get your podcasts. Here's your host, Peggy O'Neill. I'm Peggy O'Neill, host of Food for the Future, a weekly podcast that brings the humanities to today's food dialogue by showcasing everyday people trying to make a difference. This show is part of the series Our World, featuring stories from agri-food leaders who spend their lives contributing to unity for humanity. Today, we're speaking with Kristen Catherwood-Manta from Heritage Saskatchewan about food farming and the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization. Welcome, Kristen. Hi, Peggy. Thanks for having me. It's lovely to have you here. Kristen, what is Heritage Saskatchewan? So Heritage Saskatchewan is a, a nonprofit organization that's been around since 2009. And it was created um, to be um, a community of interest for our funder, which is SAS Culture, which um, we have this great system in Saskatchewan where we're funded through the lotteries. And so we were created to provide that voice for heritage in the province of Saskatchewan. Wonderful. And so it's a voice of the uh, things we're going to talk about on the show, which is culture and heritage and how to, how it comes alive. And how long has it existed and what sorts of projects do you work on? Uh, so we're going into our, I guess, already our 15th year next year as an organization. I've been working there for about eight years now. From its inception as a organization, there's been a, a focus on living heritage and intangible cultural heritage. The heritage sector traditionally was um, preoccupied with built heritage and an object heritage, so material culture. Um, so thinking of things like museums and historic sites. In the early 2000s, UNESCO drafted this convention on intangible cultural heritage, which I'll talk about more in a moment. But all this to say there's been a shift in the heritage sector internationally in recognition that there's this whole realm of intangible heritage, skills, knowledge, know-how that have historically not been protected in the way that built heritage has and artifacts have. And specifically, when I speak of built heritage and artifacts, it's often been sort of more institutional architecture or architecture of those who were wealthy in society, rather than that everyday architecture, those everyday material objects that everyday people used. Museums tended to focus on the sort of higher culture, if you will. And so UNESCO recognizing that there needed to be some recognition for heritage that is belongs to everyday people everyday life. Um, and it really grew out of some of the disciplines like folklore, which is the discipline I come out of in anthropology, cultural history, those kinds of disciplines. And so Heritage Saskatchewan, as we came into existence, this convention, which by the way, Canada has not ratified. It's one of the few countries in the world that has not. Uh, nevertheless, there's a couple provinces in Canada, like Newfoundland and Labrador and Quebec. Um, they've been working with that convention. They've actually created provincial legislation to recognize intangible cultural heritage. But our organization has been working with this concept on the ground for you know over 10 years now. Wonderful. And so really interesting when we start to think not only about Canada, but food and farming recipes, uh, local know-how on making different craft um, and craft beers, making a comeback. People are interested in various wines and whatnot, but there's all kinds of things that we've made that is intangible that that know-how isn't necessarily written down 
or learned from a book. So you had mentioned the United Nations, particularly UNESCO, which stands for United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. And what is Heritage Saskatchewan's relationship to that group? Uh, Since 2019, we have been an accredited NGO in intangible cultural heritage with UNESCO. So as I mentioned, Canada has not ratified that convention. So since we're not a ratified nation, we have no federal legislation, uh, no federal recognition of that convention. However, there are, at last count, I believe there were nine, but there could be now a few more accredited NGOs in Canada who are doing work with intangible cultural heritage and have been recognized by UNESCO. And so as a result, even though Canada has no official seat at the table, these accredited NGOs like Heritage Saskatchewan are able to tap into that UNESCO network and and then also, of course, be recognized by UNESCO that the work we're doing is contributing to the safeguarding of intangible cultural heritage. That was really meaningful for us to receive that accreditation because it was um, a feather in our cap that the work we've been doing in Saskatchewan here for several years is being noticed and recognized. As well, it, last year, I um, was granted a UNESCO co-chair in Living Heritage and Sustainable Livelihoods with mm-hmm. my colleague, Dr. Agnieszka Pawoska-Mainville at the University of Northern British Columbia. So through that work, I'm now also attached to UNESCO in that way. And I also sat on the Canadian Commission for UNESCO's Memory of the World Advisory Committee. So I've had these affiliations and the organization has had them going on five years now. Thank goodness there is a presence in Canada, even though we don't have that official designation and work just like what you're doing at Heritage Saskatchewan and, and all of the other people. You've only mentioned a few that are trying to make sure that our cultural heritage, the, the diverse fabric that it is, is um, not lost and that we're able to continue to have that role forward. Now, intangible cultural heritage, um, we talked about a general definition a few moments ago. How does UNESCO define that? UNESCO defines it as, it says, cultural heritage does not end at monuments and collections of objects. It also includes traditions or living expressions inherited from our ancestors and passed on to our descendants, such as oral traditions, performing arts, social practices, rituals, festive events, knowledge and practices concerning nature and the universe, or the knowledge and skills to produce traditional crafts. Okay, so that's huge. I'm I'm thinking of farming. And I remember my grandfather, who was born in 1917. So over 100 years ago, um, he is no longer with us. But I remember him talking about even harvesting corn. And there's something called a thrashing machine, which is this monster sized machine that they would put the wheat into, and even the way that they would bale hay. And you don't see that anymore. And when I hear that definition, I think of those types of things. And those are only a few. There's many, many things. There must be a lot of responsibility. It's wonderful that this relationship with UNESCO exists, but there must be a lot of responsibility to have that designation. What are some of the things that are your duties to fulfill that um, role in intangible cultural heritage? It's not a, a prescriptive set of tasks that we must achieve. It's more that we need to continue to demonstrate our commitment to intangible cultural heritage, and that can be demonstrated in, in a variety of ways. Mm-hmm. There are four kind of goals to safeguarding intangible cultural heritage that we work with that was drawn from, from UNESCO's framework as well, which includes documentation, uh, recognition and celebration, transmission, and then also connecting all of these activities and intangible cultural heritage with community development which includes economic development, because without that economic side of things, that um, connection to livelihoods, really, 
this, it's sort of hard to make a case for why this is important in our contemporary society. You know, seeing how culture and heritage evolve over time and how they adapt to present circumstance. So it's right. not about just honoring things in the past. It's about also recognizing how are they relevant today? We take it beyond that weekend at the museum just because it's interesting into how does this actually affect your everyday life? It's a different worldview. And when we think from a human perspective and the community, it is a very different, a very different experience. And it's why it's part of a dialogue like what we're having today when we're reflecting on our world, not necessarily passing judgment, but reflecting not only on where we've been, where we are, but where we are going together. What are some of the examples that you do at uh, Heritage Saskatchewan to safeguard cultural heritage, particularly in food or farming? Yeah, so as I mentioned before, we work with these four goals. And one, the first one is documentation. So we've done several documentation projects. We are currently working on one specifically around food and cultural heritage in Saskatchewan, food sovereignty, food security. Um, we've also done projects that might not have food in the title, but food certainly played a part in them. Um, specifically, we did a project in a village called Valmarie several years ago about their grain wooden grain elevator, which are these architectural symbols of southern Saskatchewan prairies farming, but now have, you know, they've fallen out of use. And yet some communities have managed to hold on to them. And Valmarie is one of those. So we did a project on that where we worked with community members. Uh, we worked with high school students. We worked with elders in the community. We worked with, you know, one of the community members we worked with, a fellow named Morris Lemir. His father was a grain elevator agent in that particular elevator back in the 20s and 30s. And so just learning from him about that and, and taking again to that broader picture of, okay, so we're trying to talk about this elevator. And again, what did it mean in the past? And then how is it still relevant today? And of course, food was a big part of that. The purpose of the elevator was, yes, to take that commodity of grain and sell it. But it was also um, an economic sort of linchpin in the community and not only was it a place to go and sell your grain, it was a place, again, to gather. The farmers selling their grain, they'd often be waiting in line and they'd be chatting with their neighbors. And so in that way, they'd be learning from each other how their crop went, what happened, kind of sharing that knowledge, um, as well as just, you know, strengthening those social bonds. Mm -hmm. And then through that, it just expands out into the community in terms of your neighbors and, and sharing food together through things like fall suppers. And um, Morris, you know, brought his bread recipe to our community event. Um, so when we came together to actually share the results of this project, which was um, a publication and several videos that high school students made, you know, there was home baked bread there. We were sharing food together around this project. Right. And you make an excellent point. We're not just preserving intangible cultural heritage, things like um, whether that's hunting skills or cooking skills or gardening or, or bread baking. Is that we don't know when we're going to need them. You never really know when we um, when we found out we did need those things and that we did need each other. So yes. really interesting. And your work must be so rewarding. What's some of the most wonderful things about the work that you do? I really love when people who normally wouldn't show up to a heritage event. And sometimes we call it the H word because heritage gets like people think, oh yeah, that's a museum or that's old stuff or that's not for me. But when we do these projects that are relevant to the community now, as it is now, and you have people showing up and participating who, who maybe wouldn't normally, that's really rewarding to me. And especially when we have youth who, who get involved, 
mm-hmm. um, which we try to do in every project. We always try to have at least youth being heard from, if not actively engaging in the in the project. And so the Belmarie Elevator Project I mentioned earlier, so there's only nine students from grades 10 to 12 in that school. And I worked with them to teach them how to interview people, connect them with community members. And they went out and made these videos about topics related to that grain elevator. And then I went back and interviewed them about what did it mean for you to connect to your own community's heritage in this way? And 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 their results, like what they said was, I, I had hoped they would say that it, that it was good or that they learned something, but I was really blown away by how enthusiastic they were about it, how meaningful it was to them. And so those kinds of when you can connect, especially youth with older folks in the community, and again, to enable that transmission, which is another one of those goals of safeguarding intangible cultural heritage, this knowledge transfer from one person to the next through kind of osmosis, through through training, through teaching, through conversation, through just spending time with each other. That's really rewarding to me. And also just honestly, having people come together in a room in community to talk about things like this, which are often not talked about. We we don't often talk about what are the things in our community that really matter most to us? What are the things in our lives that really matter most to us? Um, and those are things like food, relationships with others, community, um, feeling a sense of connection to your place, a sense of belonging, mm-hmm. and a sense of sort of identity built on that um, connection to place and to heritage. And we don't talk about that a lot as a society. So we can get together in a room, and there's people of all ages there, all different cultural backgrounds, and they're finding things that matter to all of them. That's really rewarding to me. Food and fellowship, wonderful. And you can hear the excitement in your voice, Kristen, when you talk about your work and, and you know, just this connecting people, time and place. Wonderful. After the break, we'll discuss living cultural heritage with Kristen Catherwood Manta from Heritage Saskatchewan, an accredited United Nations educational, scientific and cultural organization. This is Food for the Future, and I'm your host, Peggy O'Neill. Welcome back to Food for the Future on 980 CFPL, Curious Cast, and where you get your podcasts. Welcome back. I'm your host, Peggy O'Neill. You're listening to Food for the Future. We're speaking with Kristen Catherwood-Manta about living heritage in food and farming. Kristen, before the break, we talked about the importance of protecting intangible cultural heritage. So the knowledge, the skills, the way of life that we've seen in food and farming. And that's wonderful. But how does it come alive? Yeah. So to continue some of the points I was making earlier, thing with the living heritage is we recognize that For instance, to go back to the example of the thrashing machine, you know, we're not probably ever going to use that again for farming, (laughs) barring some unforeseen circumstances. You never know what can happen. But the way that we farm today, the agricultural modes of production to feed a growing population, um, we're not going to go back to those older ways of farming. We're not going to say, yeah, you know what, people should really be farming by hand again using wooden implements, you know, and sides to cut the crop. Um, at least not in the Western developed world, because of course there are places in the world where that kind of farming is still practiced and it's still very effective. The point more so is again, getting past the actual technologies and, and the actual modes and looking at some of those deeper questions around, okay, how are farmers connecting with their land? You know, farmers today, and I speak of this, I'm from a farming family, I'm actively farming. Um, I own farmland myself that my brother farms and I make decisions about my land And so I'm very plugged into actual methods of production, at least here in Canada. And so the way that we farm now, when I was a kid, my dad was often still using a tractor that was an open cab, you know, so he was out in the elements and he was pretty close to the ground, right? Right. And now um, tractors and combines 
are very high up from the ground, completely encased in glass. They're climate controlled. They're really comfortable, you know, and they've got my brother's often listening to like house music in there. He's it's like he's got a party going on. And it's great. It's comfortable and it's, it's so fast. However, it is also very removed from the land itself. Just you're physically removed from it. So one of the things I think about in living heritage and agriculture is how can farmers be connected to their land in a really tangible way, as much as we're talking about intangible cultural heritage, and also connected to community. Going back to the example of the thrashing machine or previous modes of agriculture, I mean, prior to even the thrashing machine, whole families and communities were out on those fields harvesting together down to the women and children at the very end of it all were gleaning, literally picking up each grain off the ground, getting every little bit that they could. A very communal practice. And so a lot of farmers, they still, it's very, and in my family too, we have meals in the fields, you know, at harvest time. We make an effort to go out and sit together out on the land and eat together as we're harvesting. And they don't need to have us all come out and eat together, but we want to, right? And for me, that's that living heritage as of we want to connect with each other around food and also around that harvest um, activity, because we know that this is the most important part of the year. I mean, it's all essential. You need to seed the crop to be able to harvest it, but it's in that harvesting that you are, you're making your money for the year, you're getting that crop off and everyone wants to kind of be a part of that. And so I think honing in on those social elements and remembering why we do this. Why do we farm? Yes, we're farming, we make money, we're selling a commodity. We're also doing it because we have this heritage attached to it. Many farmers in Canada, whether they are inheriting or, you know, growing up in an operation that's been in their family for generations, or they're coming to the land because they feel a pull to that way of life. Generally, there is, there's living heritage behind the decisions to even continue farming. And so making sure that we're plugging into those whys behind the how, I think is really important. And there's a lot of, um, in a why question, there's usually a lot of living heritage there. Why do we do this? Why do we care about this? Right. The whys behind the how. And you had talked before the break about not necessarily overemphasizing the mode, but the meaning of the experience of harvest or what, whatever it is that's happening. And it's really a wonderful experience. And it's what we're talking about. It's a way of life and it yep. is living a way of life and building new heritage, but also respecting uh, heritage that we have uh, in our past um, when you're working the land. So evidence of um, life gone by. So it's always very interesting. Um, and so really valuable on many, many levels. In this show, Kristen, we try to bring the humanities to today's food dialogue and leadership is part of that. It's about the human side of organizations and policy and, and our social systems leadership. So what leadership do you think is needed further to continue to foster living heritage, but also to protect intangible cultural heritage in agriculture? As I mentioned off the top, um, this UNESCO Convention on Safeguarding Intangible Cultural Heritage has not been ratified in Canada. We're one of a very few countries in the world who have not. And so Canada is actually about 20 years behind the international movement on intangible cultural heritage and living heritage practice at a national federal level. Now, I want to emphasize internationally recognized work is happening in Quebec and Newfoundland and Labrador. We're doing our thing in Saskatchewan. Grassroots communities are doing their thing. Organizations in, in First Nations across Canada are working with living heritage. However, in terms of leadership, as I said, there's no direction, there's no funding, there's no policy at a federal level. So for me, that's number one. Whether or not Canada ratifies the convention, maybe ratification isn't what needs to happen, but what does need to happen is it needs to be that conversation at a national level about living heritage in Canada as a practice, as mm -hmm. a recognizing that there's already practitioners, there's already programs out there 
it's just there isn't that at the national level, there is very little recognition about it. So increasing that national conversation, also provincially and municipally, I think all levels of government have a role to play here. And sometimes, honestly, municipal government is the most effective government there is because it can start mm-hmm. doing something so quickly if you have that leadership at a local level. Right. Okay. So leadership locally, provincially, and federally, and we'll keep reaching for the stars on intangible cultural heritage and living heritage. Do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners, Kristen? I would just encourage listeners if they're interested in the work we're doing at Heritage Saskatchewan to check us out online and see the projects that we've been working on. We're currently finishing up a project in partnership with the Royal Saskatchewan Museum and the University of Regina on food sovereignty in Saskatchewan related to culture and heritage. So we'll soon have results to share on that. And also you can check out the work we're doing through the chair I share with Dr. Agnieszka Pawoska-Mainville at www.livingheritage.ca as well. Okay, wonderful. So lots of great resources. Thank you very much for a wonderful conversation and your incredible work. I really, really am uplifted knowing that you and the entire team at Heritage Saskatchewan that are protecting intangible cultural heritage and living heritage in agriculture. So thank you very much. Thank you, Peggy, for having me and for doing the work you do. It's uh, an honor to be here today. It was a pleasure to have you, Kristen. Today on Food for the Future, we've been speaking with Kristen Catherwood-Manta from Heritage Saskatchewan, part of the United Nations Education, Scientific and Cultural Organization about living heritage in food and farming. Each week, to keep our world growing together in agri-food, we leave you and your family or friends with something to talk about and something to do. Something to talk about what's unique about your food or farming heritage. Something to do? Search Heritage Saskatchewan to learn more about one province's local leadership for global encouragement. Next week on the show, we return to the monthly series, Food for Thought. We'll hear big ideas from Aaron McGregor, dietitian and communications consultant, about ways to find credible agri-food information and research. Don't miss a show. Subscribe on Curious Cast and other major podcast platforms. I'm your host, Peggy O'Neill, and you've been listening to the weekly podcast, Food for the Future. Thank you to our Platinum Elite Level sponsor, Burn Bray Farms, Eggs for Life. Food for the Future with Peggy O'Neill airs every Saturday on 980 CFPL, Curious Cast, and where you get your podcasts.